You there, Craig? G'day, Mal. How are you? <laughs> Not too bad. Well, I've got to tell you, I found that your book incredibly moving. And I must say, your wife is a remarkable woman, isn't she? She is. Um, she's a remarkable woman. There's no doubt about that. Um, the uh, the whole experience has been a, an incredibly traumatic one for, for not only for myself, but yeah. for, for the whole family and all my friends. The the the, uh, the depression, the the breakdown, the diagnosis of uh, of bipolar disorder four years ago, yeah. um, and today it's four years on. Um, I feel very well. I've yeah. recovered, but uh, yeah, there, there's a hero in the whole story, and uh, I married her. <laughs> and uh, she, she strikes me as being a bloke s. By that I mean she's very anchored and down to earth, isn't she? Yeah, she is, and um, that's been you know one of the things that I think kept everything together, and it's, it's allowed me to to recover. As well as I have, and I say this to uh, a lot of people, you know, the experience four years ago was so traumatic, Um, the depression was so great that um, I could have, I could have lost everything. I mean, I could have lost my job, I could have lost my marriage, my family, and ultimately could have lost my life. It was that serious. But yeah, she's so anchored and so uh, supportive that uh, she simply stayed where yeah. I think a lot of people, a lot of, uh, a lot of women would have walked the other way. A lot of blokes would have too. Yeah. I mean, Mal, I've said to her plenty of times, if the roles were reversed mm. um, four years ago, I don't know that I could have stayed and, yeah. and have done what she'd, she's done. Yeah. And obviously at some point of time, she, she read the signals and she could, it, it, it locked into her head for the first time, this was serious. You were even contemplating taking your life. Well, that that um, that that day happens, and and it's talk. I talk about it in the book that um, it was a it was a really, I suppose, a significant day. There were a number of days through the through the the period of time in two thousand. This is something that manifested itself over eighteen months. I mean, you don't become suicidally depressed overnight. You don't uh, become elevated or manic or insane overnight either and I experienced all of those things mm. in um, in 2000 but yeah midway through midway through 2000 when I was extremely depressed and had not told anyone about it and that's the big that's the insidious yeah. nature of depression you, you it, it's very much all-encompassing for yourself but you're just unable to share it because you know for a lot of reasons it's the you know the the shame the humiliation the stigma that still exists around any form of mental illness or de- or depression that yeah you, you hang on to it and just hope that tomorrow will be better and you won't have to tell the story but i got to a point where I basically couldn't get out of bed um, and I'd been sliding into this black hole for months and months and months. Nothing seemed to be working. Um, I'd been put on antidepressant medication. I think uh, I'd been on it for about 10 days and for the first time in my life, I was 37 years of age, and I wasn't getting better. I was getting worse. Mm. And there's a reason for that too. I mean, mm. it takes four weeks for this yep. for these uh, drugs to actually work. So I thought my case was hopeless. I thought I'm not getting better here. I'm getting worse. Mm. I'm doing what the doctor's telling me, yet I still feel worse. And yeah, by day 10 of, of taking an antidepressant, I'm, I'm suicidal. And yeah. it's a very, very scary place to be. Yeah. 
and someone who was known to us, known to our family, um, had taken his own life yeah. in the in the forty eight hours prior, and that really hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. This fellow that I knew had had committed suicide, and it just rocked me to the core. And uh, here I was, curled up in bed, and um, my wife Louise just said to me, well, thank God you're not that bad. And I didn't reply. Mm. And she just hit me again, hit me, you know, just tapped me on the shoulder. She said, well, thank God you're not feeling as bad as that guy. And I didn't say anything again. And she just rolled me over and grabbed me and said, tell me you're not thinking those thoughts. And I said... You know, this was this was the day of reckoning. Mm. It really was. Mm. This was the this was the day I say in the book that saved my life. Yeah. Um, I just said, look, to be honest with you, those thoughts have crossed my mind. Now, that was a, you know, that was a absolutely gut wrenching day. Mm. She that just she just broke down upon that um, revelation. But it saved my life because yes. then someone else knew how serious yeah. this depression was. Yeah. And that's why this book's been written because I want to alert people to the fact that it can get very, very serious. Mm. Absolutely. Now, what's very interesting about this, to all intents and purposes, you were at the peak of your career. You were going into the Olympic Games. You, had a, you were a part of the ABC team that did so well. And that's when it all hit the fan. Yeah, that's right. Um, that, that's, this is where depression is, is so complex in that I think a lot of people who don't understand it, and I was certainly one of those mm. too, I, I didn't have any great, great insights into depression prior to the year 2000 because I'm not that sort of bloke. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I would have described myself as the last person in the world who could have been clinically depressed mm. in 2000. I mean, that's not me at all. And, I, and anyone who knows me will tell you that. Um, but here I was in this, in this situation. And yet no external factors that could um, be given as a reason for someone to be depressed. Like, uh, there hadn't been a death in my family. Um, I wasn't getting divorced. I've got a happy marriage, great kids, parents are well, brother and sister, no problem, good job, no money worries. So, you know, someone looking at me would say, well, what the hell's that guy got to be depressed about? Yeah. And I was asking these questions myself. You know, what what's causing this? So it's a really deep... Um, it's a deep and yeah. complex issue when you, there is no reason. But you're right, I was at the peak of my career, yeah. ready to go to the Olympics. And, you know, if you move forward a couple more months, um, my the, the depression had lifted. I'd come out of that depression and the mood, my mood had continued to rise uh, through, the, through the normal range into the elevated phase. Yeah. I became manic and then I became psychotic and... Um, you know, that's bipolar disorder, what used to be yeah. called yep. manic depression. And I didn't know I had it until yeah. that experience four years ago. Yes. It's interesting. I think most Aussies, and I think I know why we're this way. I mean, they beat us up about it, but we're pretty stoic. Um, we, we hang on, push the feelings away, and still try to turn up for work. And I, I happen to believe there's a history to it. I mean, given our past, if you want to look at what shapes a culture, look at the first 60 years of a nation established by transmarine migration. Look at our forebears. I mean, they had to cope with floods and fire and depression and all the rest of it. 
and the best you can hope is a mate, you know, when the fire's coming over the hill. But what do you do? Do you complain? You, you hear, hear them today, what's the use of whinging? Nobody listens to you anyway. But I, I, but I think it's shaped us, and now we've got to find new ways of opening up our interior world and having a bit of a peek in for ourselves and, and letting others in to have a bit of a, an understanding of ourselves, do you think? Mal, you're right. You're absolutely right. Take, take that grab you've just... Uh, take that little monologue you've just delivered, um, write it down and, uh, and, and publish it, mate, because that's it. That's what I believe. I think that is, that's the crux of this whole thing. Um, as Australian men, we are, uh, our greatest strength is our resilience. Yes. There's no doubt about it. Yes. We are a tough breed. Yes. Mate, I, I grew up on a dairy farm yes. um, in the Hunter Valley and, uh, and watched my father work that farm for 30 years mm. every day seven days a week. Mm. Mate, we didn't have family holidays. You didn't miss them because you didn't know any other way. Mm. But, mate, he is the... My father um, in Singleton, New South Wales, yes. is, the, is the epitome of what an Australian bloke is. Yeah. He used to... Uh, and I talk about it in the book too, where uh, he broke his pelvis. He fell off a horse mm. on, the, on the property. Yet the next day, he's got a walking stick and he's in the cow yard. Someone else is milking the cows for him. One of the blokes, mm. one of those mates that you just talked yeah. about from down the roads come up to milk the cows. But uh, the old man's standing there with a cracked pelvis yeah. waving the stick at these cows to yeah. try and do his bit. I mean, it's bloody, it's, it's yeah. ludicrous. Yet, this great resilience that we have as Australian men is also our Achilles heel. Absolutely. Because when we do fall into deep dark waters and these were the deep dark waters that i was in you know the darkest of dark yep. nights of the soul yes. if you want to if you yes. want to put it that way mate the, the all the things that have have kept us strong mm. and help us to you know be this mm. resilient type of bloke they're not worth two bob no because we then don't have the skills to reach out to one another Absolutely. and say, mate, I'm struggling here and get me through. Mm. So really, um, this has been a massive learning curve yeah. for me and I just hope I can share the story yes. and, and help others in doing so. Well, as I hear the story, your wife reckons you're much easier to live with now. Yes, she does. Um, Louise has written a chapter in the book. Yes. and um, I actually enjoyed that. I, 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 I've read it all, but I, I was absolutely fascinated that you'd let, you know, that the, the structure of the book is such that she actually writes that story from her point of view. Quite fascinating. Well, I thought it was important mm. to, to get her point of view and give her the chance to, you know, for want of a better word, vent her spleen because... <laughs> It was awful. I, I look back at the time and, and say, I've said to her, why did you stay? How did you stay? I mean, this was just a, a mm. bloody nightmare mm. um, with, a, with a husband who was just totally ineffective, mm. totally depressed for probably six months. Um, and, and through the course of 2000, a year 2000, I was off work for three months. Yeah. Now, I also had a great employer, I've got yeah. to say, in the ABC. Yes. Stuck by me uh, through thick and thin, and I'd like to think um, I'm repaying some of that loyalty now with, with the work that I'm doing. I've, I have been back at work for four years, mm. and I've had two days off in four years. I have recovered, and I do manage bipolar disorder now, mm. I think, very well. But but you're, you're right, um, Louise tells it graphically, and she pulls no punches, she's a straight shooter, and... Um, 
Mm. Yeah, she she gives it to me <laughs> with spades in the chapter. I think it's she a does. very honest I think it is. appraisal. I think it is. Because it seems to me, Craig, see if I'm wrong. Um, first of all, let me say, I, I don't think we need to bash Aussie blokes. Uh, they turn up for work through all kinds of difficulties until it's too late. But we need to help them say the rest. But we need to celebrate the best of it, but show them what the flip side is. And uh, But we've produced incredible soldiers who never want to go and take anybody's property. They're still turning up like a mate to help fight the fire, the soldiers are. They don't think they're going out uh, to hurt anybody. They will if, 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 if it uh, you know, comes down to it. But, but I think we've got to unpack it a little. And let me just check something out, you see. I, I could be wrong, but I get a feeling, you, you, you know, even before this turned up, there was a driven quality to a lot of your life, wasn't there? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, I can look back now and, and you know, 2020 vision, and, mm. or, you know, hindsight is 2020 vision. Um, I look back at the way I used to live yeah. um, through my 30s, and there was a pattern there. That uh, of lifestyle, which you don't identify until you come out the other end of a, a, a terrible experience. You look back and you say, "Well, geez, you know that, that that's how I used to live." Is it any wonder I had a meltdown? I, th- there was a, there was a constant pattern of burnout, mm. of frenetic activity, creative work, long hours, lots of partying, mm. lots of drinking. Um, the good times, if you like, the high times, mm. then there'd be a point in time, and I'm working as well, very, very hard through all this, and mm. uh, there was a period of time there through the, the mid-90s where I'm basically working two jobs. I was working in a mine, yes. Monday to Friday, and on all weekend broadcasting yes. football on the weekends with the ABC, because I want, that was the dream job. Uh, so, so I'm working seven days a week for two or three years, um, and it, you know, you look at it and you think, "Gee, how did you do that?" And this is this is the mania component mm. of bipolar disorder, where you got this incredible energy, but then comes the inevitable burnout, yeah. and I'd just completely flatten the batteries, so I had nothing. Now that happened twice during the 1990s mm. um, when I needed eight weeks off work, yeah. but I learnt nothing. Yeah. From those experiences, I just, you know, picked myself back up off the canvas those first two times, yeah. went back to the old lifestyle, yeah. back, didn't learn a thing, had to really fall off the edge of the earth to to, uh, to learn anything. And I did, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't get much worse than, than going mad on a, on a train station, literally going mad, yeah. becoming psychotic on the way to the, the Olympic Games and, um, yep. and being confined to a, a mental hospital for 14 days, which was, which was the reality. Uh, yeah, I'll come back and chat about that in a minute. But one of the reasons I was really keen, and I think you're doing us all a service, and to some extent I'm absolutely convinced, Craig, in the long run, so long as you keep on looking after yourself, my friend, I, I think this is, this is one of those incredible curses that will become a blessing because there are so many Aussie blokes in this position. They're heroes. I'm absolutely convinced in their heart of hearts they're doing as well as they know how. But they're doing it like their fathers did it. And, uh, and we know some things now. I've got to tell you, I'm into adolescent therapy particularly. And I, a, a tidal wave of depression is coming. And I think it's because we're a bit trapped on the inside, you know. Uh, we've got to rediscover some spirituality. I don't, I'm not saying religion, but hearing the voices, not in the head, but in the heart, if that makes any sense, when the red lights go on and start responding to them soon enough. 
they say there are about three main areas of crisis, 17 to 24, when it comes up, and you're asking, who am I? Where am I going? Maybe I get my TER gives me a university place or something like that, but do I really want to do it? One third of the kids being counselled at university have been counselled around the idea, do I really want to do what I'm doing? And you can push it under, and then it bubbles again at 28 to 32. And it's around this question, the tide of life is taking me somewhere, but in my heart of hearts, is it taking me away from the things that matter most to me or taking me toward what I want? But you can muffle that. By that time, you've got mortgages and you've got opportunities coming up in your career. If you, if you throw it under then, it blows up 45, 55, and then you do stupid things by falling in love with 18-year-old females, learning tap dancing and buying red sports cars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if we can just get a few, if we can learn a few things for the 17 to 25-year-olds, if blokes like you can talk out that they've seen on the television, and of course in a minute I want to chat about uh, what was that, that experience like, uh, the 60 minutes thing and all the rest of it. Yep. So I'm keen to retrace it because... At one level, there are unique parts of this, and you don't want to be glib about it. There's a, a biochemical part. But I'm also thinking, I'm asking why, and this is what they're saying, the World Health, Health Organization is saying, beyond AIDS, this, as we go into the next 20 years, this is going to be the most serious, serious health challenge the globe will be facing. And I'm wondering why. Yeah, it's a big question. And I, I've got no doubt at all. You're right on on, on all on all fronts. Um, and this this has this has been one of the I suppose the insights that I've got out of this experience is that um, is that we as a society we are getting it wrong yeah. with the messages we're sending out to our kids. Yeah. Um, now it's taken me until the age of 37 to implode, yeah. you know, for want of a better word, and I've survived, and I, you know, but for the grace of God, I'm still here and, and, and able to talk to you and a little bit, a yep. hell of a lot wiser for the event, but the, the 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds today, the pressures that are on them, that society puts on our kids today to achieve, to get ahead, or else, that's the message. It's not much, so much a message of hope anymore. It's a message of uh, don't even think about leaving school in year ten because you know you're basically um, you've blown the rest of your life if you do. You've got to go through to year twelve. That's the message the kids are told to start with. The next message they get, which is a little bit more pressure on top of that cake, is oh, you better do well. Uh, in the in the HSC, you better get a good TER or whatever they call it now, so you can get a, a, a university placement, or your life is stuffed. Then when you get to uni, the next message or, or the next heap of pressure you get is, you better get a really good uh, degree and and succeed well because there's every every second man his dog's got a degree today, and if you want that great career, you better do really. Well. So by the time. These guys, the girls and, uh, and boys today, uh, are 18, 19, they go, what the hell is all this about? Yeah. What's it, you know? I think we're losing the plot. Absolutely. I don't think we are. I know we are. It's, you know, we, we've got to cut some slack and we've got to cut it quickly and not produce a, a dog-eat-dog yeah. society yeah. and a dog-eat-dog community. We've got to start looking after one another yeah. and realise that there's a hell of a lot more important things in life because it is, we are creating yes. right now the problem 
2020 that they're talking about, which Absolutely. is uh, it'll be it'll be an emptiness and a, and a you know, you use the word spiritual um, a, a lack of a, yes. a spiritual direction an emptiness within that's depression and that's yes. what all that that'll be the reality for 2020 if we don't wise up. Yeah. Uh, Jean Vanier is his name. He's a very well-known character. He's done a lot of work with disabled people and mentally retarded people in France. Very famous man. He says, little by little you learn to distinguish between the ways of peace and light and the ways of darkness. But we're not giving each other or our kids a chance to do that journey. No. And uh, another uh, very well-known adolescent therapist that I have a great respect for says, look, we're turning our kids into spiritual anorexics. Now, once again, we're not talking about religion. We're talking about tuning in to the foundations of who you are and, 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 and learning your story, you know, and, and finding the way so you're not just driven by external demands, but you can think your own thoughts and feel your own feelings and know your own heart. Well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, it's... Um it's not. It's not. A, there's no easy answers here, and it's a very complex area. But, but the what I know now is, if I look back at the way I lived prior to 2000, it was my motivation. Uh, I look back at it was. It was just. Um, it really was crazy. It was this huge desire to get ahead, mm. this huge desire to be successful, mm. to get the job in the media, and to get out of coal mining, which it really. I did, I'd had an, I'd had worked 16 years underground, yeah. and um, I really saw this new career was something I'm, I love and, pa- and I'm very yeah. passionate about. And look, I've got there. Yep. And I and I'd got there, and by 1999, um, I had a full time job with the ABC. I had the dream job, and achieved what I I was living the dream. Yet the dream came tumbling down. Yeah. The world came tumbling down, and I was left with no answers. So it was a big, big journey back, to, and you know, retraced a few steps too before I had the chance to come for, start walking forward again. Yes. Well, I've been involved in broadcasting myself for about 35 years, and, and it seems to me you've, you've got the gift for it, but still you have to bring all of you, and very often you don't know what else is missing from your life, do you? Until you have some kind of crisis, and then you get a tip on the sh- a tap on the shoulder and say, "Hello." Um, the Gestalt therapists call it unfinished business, clamouring for attention. But you get divided, and that's where you get burnt out. And um, you know the two parts arguing with one another, and you're running away from your self doubt. Yeah, that's right. That that's exactly right. Look, I, Mal, I really hope um, in in broken open. The, in my book that it is a book of hope and inspiration it is a rough ride i mean yeah. it's a it's a shocking ride the first first half of it um and i, I tell people and i'm only half joking i say don't read the first three chapters at night um yeah. but but after that i i do hope there's some hope and inspiration there for for those who are out there and a lot of people suffer in silence because yeah. of this this stigma um and this, uh, you know, shame that still exists around anything to do with depression, yeah. anything that's got this tag mental illness, something, this illness that we can't see, we can't touch it, yet it's there, it's very real, I can tell you from experience, it's very real, and um, if someone can get something from the book, some tools, then then I'm, I'm very happy about that, and I know it's helping people, it's been yeah. out for five weeks, and the feed, feedback I'm getting 
is is great, and it's it's written for people who need it and for families who need it. Mm, it's fabulous. Let me tell you, I've been around this kind of challenge for a while, and uh, there's a clarity in the way you write. The narrative's strong. I, I, I've got to tell you, I'm excited about our country. Uh, for too long, we've been hearing stories from overseas, but I think the narrative's growing up through our own struggles to make sense of our existence. And I think yours is one. Let's come back and tell... Let's kick off with the book, that, When You Were There on the Railway Station. That moment. Can you relive it with us for a moment? Explain to us. Yeah. Um, well, that's where the book starts. And um, it's certainly not where the story starts or how we get yeah. there, but the, as I said to you earlier, you don't, you don't go mad overnight. It's not something... You, you're not sane one day and mad the next. Uh, it takes time to become insane. I know that from experience. Um, after, after I'd been depressed uh, uh, and started to come out of the depression, finally, on antidepressant medication, my mood continued to rise, unbeknownst to everybody. I'm, I'm starting to operate into an elevated phase, mania. I'm, I'm now manic probably a week or 10 days away from heading to Sydney for the Sydney 2000 Olympics. I get finally get to the uh, the train station in Newcastle on the day that I'm set to catch a train to head to Sydney to cover the Games, and I think I'm well. I really do. I think I'm... Not only do I think I'm well, I'm 10 foot tall, I'm bulletproof. Yes. No, my wife can sense that something's not right. She can't put a finger on it. She's a nurse. Uh, my friends just think I'm like the little boy in the lolly shop who's just so excited about going to the Olympic, the Olympic Games that, as, as a broadcaster, that's just this lifelong dream, or the dream of every sports broadcaster. This over-exuberance can be explained away mm. quite easily. Mm. He, he's, of course he's excited. He's going to the Olympics. Mm. The reality was I was bordering on psychosis. I was mm. close to insanity at that time. Um, no one knew, but in my mind, I thought I was Jesus Christ, yeah. reincarnate. That's the seriousness of this delusion. Um, and I don't just say that I thought I was the equivalent of Jesus Christ, reincarnate, with all his inherent powers. Mm. I thought I was the man himself, mm. back to to save the planet. I mean, this was... Um, you know, I look back at it now, it's as clear as crystal. Mm. It's incredible. But it was happening inside my mind on that day, and it had been for 48 hours prior to to getting to uh, getting to Broadmeadow Station. Very quickly, upon getting to the station, that psychosis turned into you know absolute insanity. I, I was uh, if if thinking you Jesus Christ isn't insanity anyway. I mean, um, I started running up and down or walking up and down the the platform at Broadmeadow screaming abuse at um, one of my closest friends. Yeah. I became, I really was this out-of-control, psychotic person. Um, they rang Louise. Louise had dropped me off, and we only lived five minutes from the station. She came back. She took one look at me and said, he's psychotic. Mm. Call mental health. Call the mental health crisis team. Now, Louise... In, in a funny way, she said it was a relief for her to see me in that state because it explained everything. Yeah. She now knew. Sorry? She now knew. She now knew, yeah. exactly. It explained why in the previous 10 days I'd only I'd survived on two and three hours sleep yeah. a night. Why 
I had this flood of great ideas. I was writing pages and pages and pages of notes. Mm. I was over-exuberant. I was running around like with, with boundless amounts of energy. That's mania. Mm. Uh, that's, that is, yep. that's, uh, and if it's not reined in, if it's not identified yep. and controlled, it leads to madness, and that's, uh, that's what happens. So that's what happened on the station. Uh, they call the mental health crisis team, and I mean, here's the great irony that we face in in Australia, in our health system right now, because of the lack of resources yes. in mental health, they called the mental health crisis team, which is what you do, mm. uh, don't you, when you've yep. got a mental health yep. crisis on your hands. They were told that we have a 37-year-old male, he's storming up and down the platform, he's screaming abuse at everybody, including his friends, um, and he weighs about 85 kilos. And they immediately said, oh, that's in the too-hard basket. You're kidding. Call the cops. Yeah. So, um... Poor police who are not even prepared or equipped for this kind of thing. Well, they're not, but they so often they are the front line. Yeah, yeah. More often, you know, there'll be police listening tonight yeah. uh, around Australia, Mal, and I go, "Yep, I know what that guy's talking about," yeah. because we've—they face that. They confront yeah. the reality of mental illness in the community, yeah. psychosis, every day of the week. It's terrible for them, and they—I would think. 99 times out of 100 do a wonderful job and on this day they did a wonderful yeah. job they sent sent six police down yeah they had to actually physically yeah grab me and i fought for my life mm. because i wasn't going in the back of the paddy wagon i wanted to go to the olympics mm. i was going to the olympics so i wasn't a criminal why are you putting me in the back of the truck mm. yet that's exactly where i needed to be um and I was transported from there to the James Fletcher Hospital. In a, I was a very, very sick boy. Yeah. But, um, you know, I look back at it now, uh, and I can really tell the story from a, um, from a, a position far removed from those days. It is only four years ago, but uh, as traumatic as it was, um, that's where the book starts, yeah. Mel. Yes, it does. Now, uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, so at the time, you, you knew they were police, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I knew they were police. I didn't understand why they were there. Yeah. Um, you know, what... Uh, you know, people... They did a great job. What they did, with six of them, they just arrived on the station. I'm still storming up and down, abusing, you know, one of my great friends, Chris Williams. I mean, yeah. we were cricket teammates, for yeah. goodness sake. We'd played together in the same team, opened the bowling together for yeah. 10 years. I'd been the MC at his wedding. Yeah. He'd attended... He and his wife, Kathy, had been to our wedding. I mean, yet I was giving this most mouth, foul-mouthed abuse. Yeah. Yet he stuck solid and stayed there with me because he knew something was dreadfully wrong. Yeah. Dreadfully wrong. And when the police arrived, um, that, look, nobody knew my state of mind. This is the scary thing about psychosis. Yeah. No one else knows what's actually going through the through the, um, the patient's mind. I call myself a patient yeah. because I was about to become one. Um they, the station master, the police, Chris, Louise, they might have been thinking, he's going to jump under a train. Mm. You know, he's going to commit suicide. He's going to jump underneath a train. Now, there were no trains coming because the station master, having seen my state, cancelled all the trains. They rang, rang, mm. rang uh, down the track and, and back the track. They said, don't let any trains come through Broadmeadow. We've got a, a guy here who's in serious trouble. Um... So, yeah, you say, yeah, I recognise the police. They formed a conga line. 
between me and the platform and the, and the tracks to make sure if I was considering jumping, they were going to get to me first. Mm. And uh, but I wasn't. I mean, that's the that's the honest truth. I was in, I was mate. I, in my own mind, I was um, Jesus Christ on the mm. way to the Olympic Games, ready to save the planet. For goodness' sake, I wasn't mm. about to. Uh, to um, to jump in front of a train, but no one else knew that, so they had to take the absolute care which they did, mm. and um, yeah, got me got me safely into with a, with a massive struggle into mm. the into the back of um, a police van and off to hospital. Well, you certainly have uh, very positive things to say about the James Fletcher Hospital. Yeah, they were terrific. Um, I think mental institutions as a as a general rule, get a bad rap. Mm. Um, and most of the time, I think the bad rap comes from people who've never been in one. Yeah. They've just they've just heard, a, you know, and people mm. talk about them. And I, and I think um, movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, mm. Probably everyone remembers that movie, and they think, oh, gee, so they're all like that. Mm. Well. I've got to say, and it's quite funny, there were periods of time in that 14 days when some of the scenes were very similar yes. to the movie. Um, but yeah. the more horrific stuff, definitely mm. not. I mean, yeah. my experience in, in a psychiatric hospital in Australia in 2000, in the year 2000, was very positive. Mm. The, the care was first class. Um, I was seriously ill when yeah. I was admitted, and 14 days later when I was discharged, I was still unwell, but... The the worst the worst of the experience was behind me. My mood had been stabilised, and I'd been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which, uh, even though I didn't want to accept that uh, at the time, because no one wants to, you know, no one wants to really um, yeah. have someone say, "Mate, you're mentally ill. You have a mental illness." Yeah. I mean, it's the last thing Australian blokes want. But uh, once I accepted that, and it took a few months, Mel, I've got to yeah, say, it took yeah. two or three months, even after what I'd been through, to accept, yeah, that's that's the uh, that's what you're dealing with here. Yeah. That, um, mate, um, you know, that I could start to to really move forward, and uh, it's taken some time. But you know, this book's been written now four years on, yeah, and um, it pretty much accurately documents the the whole story. Yeah. Well, in your book you say, even though you've beaten it, there's no room for complacency with this disorder. The crash of 2000 revealed the worst possible way just to and what was driving the wagon, as you say. Mm. It was bipolar in all its towering horror. You can never put this awful genie back in the bottle, but you can manage it. And that's what I love about it. You are saying, listen, go and get some help. There are mates out there and you don't have to be beaten by this, but you've got to admit it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah well, it is. It is. And, and look, it is hard because, um, look, I know there's no more stubborn Australian than me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, if someone, if a doctor or a friend or my family member, closest friends, family, work colleagues, had got to me, say, 15 days before the Broadmeadow experience, 15 days before I'd become psychotic, mm. I'd beaten depression, or so I thought. I'd come out the other end anyway, and I was feeling good again. Mm. I was feeling great. I was ready to go. And if someone had then at that stage identified and said, hang on, this is classic bipolar. You've had the depression. Now your mood is, is morphing upwards at a rapid rate. We need to 
get some intervention right now to stop you going crazy. We've got to rein you back. We've got to. You need to be medicated. You're showing us all the signs of someone with bipolar disorder, mate. I wouldn't have believed it. Not in a million yeah. years. I wouldn't have listened. I would have said, "No, you got the wrong bloke. I'm fine. Mm. Get lost." I had to literally go to hell yeah. to to find the truth. And um, all I'm saying, I mean. The statistics tell us that one in 50 Australians will develop bipolar disorder. One in 50. That's still some pretty serious odds there. I think, Mel, there's a lot of self-medication that goes on in our community. I've got no doubt at all. I've got (laughs) a a lot of what presents as substance abuse and alcoholism, which are exactly the wrong things for it, and isolationism. Uh, they're, They're all heading in the wrong direction. But I think you're right. There's a lot of self-medication. Because the sad truth is, not sad truth, the fact is, it's easier, it's more socially acceptable in Australia to have a drink, an alcohol and drug problem than it is to have a mental illness. Mm. It's that, that's the reality. It's more acceptable to be a bloke who, who drinks 25 schooners a day or someone who uh, smokes... Um, four or five bongs of, yeah. of marijuana a day than to say, no, I'm actually, the reason I'm smoking four or five bongs a day or drinking 25 schooners a day is because I've actually got a mood disorder mm-hmm. that could be treated far better um, with some lifestyle change and some, some good medication. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a you know, I, I, look, I identified, I say put my hand up binge drinker extraordinaire mm. you know prior to 2000 I mean it'd be nothing I, I'd five or six times a year um, I would drink beer until midnight and bourbon until five mm. and in that in those manic phases you can do it mm. you can do it easily it hardly touches you I'd, you know, I'd go to work the next day I'd, I'd go from literally go from the nightclub walk out onto a onto the footpath and, and go to work yeah, but it's chewing up your central nervous system. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, doing myself a hell of a lot of damage. Yeah, absolutely, but, um, mate. It's a book about hard, hard won lessons. I yeah. can tell you, it's a beauty. It's it, but it's our story now. By that I mean it's your story. But I think it's a part of our cultural story, and that's why you're doing us a service. I'm so thankful you've done it, Craig. Good on you. And the whole 60 Minutes story, of course, you came across a bunch of other people who'd uh, been battling with it and were choosing to come out also to lend a hand to others. Yeah. Um, look, the 60 Minutes thing was... Um, there's still a lot of people that didn't want me to do 60 Minutes mm. who were close to me, um, and there was a few reasons for that. But, look, I was I was determined to do 60 Minutes and, and I was determined to write this book because I know it's the right thing to do yeah. in, in my heart, and yes. that's the thing that counts. Absolutely. Um, I know it's the right thing to do to share the story. I'm so over the stigma, the, the embarrassment, the shame, whatever, yeah. about having been through this experience. It doesn't touch me, yeah. and so I can do it. Yeah. And I will do it. And, um, you know, if that means being a vocal advocate for, for mental health services, if that means arguing with politicians about the, the level of service in this country and actually opening their eyes to the extent of the problem, I'm happy to do that because the suffering that um, is the net result for the ignorance 
and the, the fact that we just don't acknowledge this as a problem is too great to ignore. Yeah. And I know, I know it because I've lived it. I know how bad it is. I know how bad it was. Yeah. And I've recovered because I had every single yeah. piece of support known to, to mankind helping me get better. A lot of Australians aren't as lucky as I was. Absolutely. Craig, I love the way your wife said this. She said your kids always believe you're the most wonderful man ever God ever breathed uh, life into. But now she believes you're the most wonderful man. <laughs> and I think that makes its own statement. It seems to me you've come home to your own skin, not that things are perfect. But to some extent, you're a larger and richer man now because of the experience. We wouldn't wish it on anybody, but there can be a way in which this becomes a doorway. I love the idea of breaking open. Uh, the future's there now, isn't it? I tell people that uh, what happened to me four years ago was the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. But at the same time, it's the best thing. And that'll sound, <laughs> that'll yeah. sound as though it's, uh, it's all uh, too yeah. paradoxical to even uh, contemplate, yeah. but that's how I look at it. It was the worst thing. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, yet the experience has, it has opened my eyes yeah. in, in so many ways. And... Um, I can tell you I'm standing on a hell of a lot more solid base today than I was six or seven years ago. Good on you. Craig Hamilton, thanks for joining us here on The Conversation of the Nation. Mel, all the best, mate. It's great to, to, uh, to, uh, to talk to you tonight, and uh, I hope those that uh, need the book uh, will read it and their families get something, something from it, mate. Good on you.